All right. Welcome to round two of the Church Revitalization Boot Camp. And it is right after lunch, and we're expecting... What's that? I think it's... All right, I can hold it a little closer. That way you can hear me a little bit better. So, like as I said, welcome to round two of the Church Revitalization Boot Camp. We're glad you're here. And our expectation is that there will be no heads nodding right after lunch. So hope that uh, you're able to, to stay with us. All right, because this is going to be some excellent material you're going to hear from Pastor Humphreys to start off with. Pastor Humphreys was pastoring in a rural setting and, and led in church revitalization for small churches. And then also, uh, because obviously well, God was blessing him there, He's now at the much larger church in Raleigh, North Carolina, Gethsemane Church. Happy to have him here. And he's going to be sharing for about 20 minutes. And then we're, we're going to take about 15 minutes of questions, Q&A for Pastor Humphreys, okay? So what you'll do, you'll have your question ready. You'll state the question, and then um, we'll repeat the question back because we're being recorded. And, and, then, and then the question will be answered. Okay, and if you need Spanish translation, uh, our pastor friend in the back, he's got his hands up doing a, there he is, all right. Um, if you need Spanish translation, make sure to see him now, and it is being interpreted, translated, and then um, make sure you take the equipment from him, but before you leave, you return the equipment as well. So we like to ask God to bless this meeting because it's not about learning Methods. It's about asking for God's blessing, his power. Amen. Father in heaven, we want to pause a moment to recognize what I just said is, is a reality. That church methods do not bring the power. It is the Holy Spirit that brings the power. Amen. And we have a lot of power that we need right now. We have, we have so many things going on in the world. And the people are, are wanting answers to their questions. Um, but we can't answer those questions. We can answer those questions. We, we can have good reasons or good reasoning, good, good arguments, good logic. But that's not going to change anybody's heart. But only you can change hearts. And only you can lead out for church revitalization to take place in our churches. But, of course, that starts on an individual basis as well. I pray that you would bless us as we continue to learn about church revitalization. I pray you would be with Pastor Humphreys as he shares and I pray that you would be with us so that this would not be just something that we say, hey, that sounds nice, but something that we can take back to our fields, back to our districts that we can apply. We ask for your special blessing of your Holy Spirit to be here, not just to be here, but go with us as we go back. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. All right. Good afternoon, everybody. How, how was lunch? Was lunch okay? Was it good? Okay. There's going to be a lot of multimedia on the screen to keep you awake. Come on, say amen, somebody. All right? Amen. Some pictures here. So we're going to be talking about, you know, revitalizing a small church. Any, anybody ever pastor a small church before? Yeah? Yeah? Exciting stuff, right? It's good. It's good. We're going to be engaged in some things today. I'm going to share with you just my context of what's going on. I, I, I pastored in a rural area, and uh, it's called Little Washington because they didn't want to mistake it for the big Washington in D.C. where the White House is. So they call it Little Washington. Um, uh, and I'm going to share some things with you. I, I, what I'm going to present to you today uh, uh, only works if you're not a lazy pastor. 
Okay, amen. <laughs> this is, you have to work what I'm sharing with you. So uh, we're going to get ready to get into it. This here, this is me. As you can see, this is a nice smiley face of myself here. But I want to share with you all what God has done. Now, this is, this is an awesome article that I was in. And I'm not using this for bragging purposes. I praise God for what he's done. But this is the end result, right? We, we want to grow our churches. Amen? Uh, and this was a wonderful thing. Uh, we took out the pulpit and put the big pool in the middle. And I'm, I'm baptizing this young lady and her son. And, and and we love for this end result, but it takes a lot of work to get here. Is that right, everybody? Amen. It, it takes a lot of work to get here. And so I'm really proud of this moment, but I'm thankful to God for what he did. So I pastored the Maranatha Seventh-day Adventist Church. When I got there in uh, 2017, I had 13 members there. All right? I had the, my youngest member, my youth was 61. Amen. I had a young person of 60, 61. The faithful few were giving. Out of the 13, only five people were giving to church, right? And so the giving was naturally low, obviously. And there were the last 25 years, maybe they had one or two baptisms. So this is kind of where, where I'm dealing with. But let me give you our city of, of, of the beautiful grand city of Washington, North Carolina. Low-income families, a, a, a major populace uh, of single-parent homes, low test scores, I'm going to share that in a second, a middle and high school, and then this is the fun part. Not only that, my church was saturated around 60 other churches. All right, so this is talking about how we're going to grow despite having all these different churches here. And so uh, I want to share with you a couple of things that I told my church when I first got there. When you get there and I pull up, I was coming from Atlanta Berean, which is the largest church in the Southern Union at the time, and had a full praise team, a full band. I had staff. I had a secretary. And then I get here, and it's just me and my lovely wife. And so I've got to make this thing work. And so when I t met with our, our church, our 13 members, I was in a scenario where this is what they consider the small church. You all know with the small church, right? You have a district, you have your larger church, you have your smaller church. This was my smaller church, but what's funny is my smaller church was in a larger city. My larger church was in a smaller city. So what we ended up doing was we believed that God could bless us in the larger city with this small church. So a couple of three non-negotiables, you can take a picture of this if you want to, but I believe this is important, but we move on any further. This is what you need to know. Number one, we had to cultivate a hospitable, compassionate environment. That's number one. We had to do that. In order for people to come and be a part of your fold to grow, they need to know this is an environment that cultivates hospi uh, being hospitable and compassionate. Passionate. Number two, we had to embrace necessary change. So I met with the church and I said, look, do you want to grow? Yes. Then that means we have to make some changes. We have to do some things that are going to be unique. And the last thing is this. You have to operate in your primary mission. Everything that you do, hear me today, everybody, everything that you do has to be centered around your primary objective. And obviously, our primary objective is what? To make, to make disciples for the kingdom of God. There should be nothing that you're doing that does not align with your mission. All right, everybody? So when you place that into the palm of your members' hands, this is what's, what, what God can continue to do. So first thing you need to do, number one, you've got to identify the need. Uh, one of the biggest issues that we have in church today is that we tend to uh, want to answer questions that nobody's asking. And so um, what we decided to do, myself and an elder, now everybody's retired, but people look at that as a bad thing. But that's a good thing because everybody's retired. They have nothing to do during the day. So an opportunity for us to do some extreme Bible work during the day. And so what we did was I went to my neighborhood, and, and this method still works. I just knocked on doors. 
but I need you to know this. This is very important. When you're identifying the need, you have to give them an offer that they can't refuse. Now, I'm a person, when somebody knocks on my door, I'm just like, what do you want? Like, I don't want to talk to you. But see, what we, what we did was we, we weren't presenting anything that was, you know, we're not inviting you to a program. Our number one question was, hey, I'm a new pastor in the area. This is our new pastor here. What do you need to survive in this community. And we begin to identify that most of our people who are around our a block of our church, they didn't have enough food to make it to the end of the month. The check wouldn't last long enough. Now we, we couldn't be a food bank and we couldn't uh, do all these different things these larger churches did. But we could realize if we were able to provide you with goods to last you the rest of the month, we know that we could make a major difference. Notice this by Dr. Tom Rayner. 92% of pastors really don't know their community. Now, this is interesting because when we get to some of these churches, right, the first thing that we think is, I want to save the whole city. And, and while that's great, praise the Lord, you, you can't save your city until you first know your block. Do I have a witness here today? You got to know the family. You should know the names of the family members that live around your church. Watch what he says here. This is Tom Rainer again, because community matters. When a church ceases to have a heart and ministry for its community, it's on a path toward death. Whenever local churches are mentioned in the New Testament, they are always exhorted, uh, exhorted to be other-centered. Other-centered. And so one of the things that we did, we decided to do, everybody, is that we would do this thing called Operation Save the Block. And what we decided to do, we did no evangelistic meeting for the first year. Now, watch what I said. I didn't say we didn't do any evangelism. We didn't do an evangelistic meeting. We decided as a church, 13 of us uh, who stood in the center of our church after prayer meeting, we said the only way we're going to grow this church is if we spend a year trying to meet people's needs and build relationships because we realize that the that that community and you all know this to be true the community can smell an evangelistic series coming a mile away you know we'll put up a few uh, we'll put up a few uh, bouncy houses and we'll give away a tv and a few things and we'll come knocking on the door every three months and then we go back and we do nothing but instead we decided to just figure out what their need was so what we did was every fourth saturday was Community Saturday. Every fourth Saturday uh, in the month, we would typically do Community Saturday unless it was something special going on. And so we do was we dress down, and what we do is we would be able to get a chance to meet their need. That means that people in our community, if they said they couldn't make it to the end of the month, what we did was we put boxes and bags together. It wasn't just food. It was also laundry supplies. It was also bags of coins for them to go to the, to the, to the laundry mat to take care of their needs. We realized if this is what you say you cannot you cannot handle through the rest of the month, we're going to help you with that. We're going to be your primary source to make it through life at the end of the month. And do you know what? Every fourth Saturday, we had about 25 to 30 people from the community coming to our church. Now, now praise the Lord. That's important. Now, I haven't asked them to join the church yet because I'm trying to build a relationship with them. All right, I don't want to. I don't want to. Hey, hey, come and get a Bible study. No, I want to know who you are. I want you to know who I am. I want to meet that need. Number two, once you once we did that, we realized we took a survey because every time you have new people that come to your doors, you should always be asking them what are some things that we can continue to do to bless you. We decided in that year we're going to take time to equip our church. Okay, we're going to take some time to equip our church. When we're revitalizing a small church, it's essential that you have to train your members for new people. 
okay? Now, see, your members have been, especially if there's been no growth, they've just been talking to themselves. They know how they are. They know how each other are. They're okay with how each other live, and they're okay with talking to each other, but they may not be able to handle what it's like bringing in new people. They, they don't know how to speak to them. So what we did was, number one, this is very important as a side note, I, I did stewardship training for my church because I believe that God couldn't bless us until we got faithful. So, so what we did was we brought in Steve Norman from the, from the Southern Union, and we did a stewardship revival uh, for about three or four days. And after that, for an entire year, every member was doing 10 plus 10. Next, we did well, we did community engagement. We brought in Roger Hernandez and a few others to, came, to come in and teach us how to knock on doors and talk to people. That's very important to understand. You have to train those who are in your congregation to learn how to talk to people. All right, everybody? The last thing is this. The most important, I believe, in essential evangelism is personal evangelism. We didn't have enough money to do an event, bring an artist in. No, but we realized that if we could figure out how to talk to you and get you and engage with you and invite you into our building and we connected with you, we believed that we could get people to come into our doors. Once we realized and did the training, it's simple. We begin to write the vision. What do we want for our church? What's a realistic goal that we need to have? How can we reach out and equip our church? What do we need to do? So we, we upgrade our sound system. We raise money by reaching out to family members, asking to donate and give. We were getting ready to tear down a building that we had on our lot. We end up renovating the building by raising money, asking people to bless us so we could go out and bless the community at large. Watch this. One of the remarkable paradoxes of Christianity is that we nourish ourselves as we serve others. The serving Christian is a growing Christian. All right, everybody, look at this. Serving, serving church is a growing church. Vision calls people to service. Where, and this is important here because this is true in small churches too. Where there is no vision, people become idle, selfish, and self-feeding parasitic consumers. Your members will feed on each other and your vision and, and who you are if you have no vision for them, if they have nothing else to do. But because everybody was retired, everybody had a goal. Everybody had an assignment. It, it didn't matter whether you were talented in one area or not. We grew each other and we worked together. The next thing is this, everybody. Once you establish and, and, and get your, your church together, you got to take time to build relationships, you got to build relationships. So my name is Pastor Humphreys. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not a bishop or an apostle. But when I would go knock on doors, everybody called me Rev Humphreys or Bishop Humphreys or Apostle. And at first, I, I would correct them. But after a while, I stopped because I realized, now I'm not just a pastor of this church. I'm the pastor of this block. And if, if you're if you going to call me Reverend, I'll be your Reverend. If you want to be your bishop, I, I'll be your bishop. Because I realize that this is how you're identifying with me as a spiritual leader in the community. I begin to go around the city, do different things with them. And we, now this is important, everybody. It takes the entire church to move this. It's not all on you. Are, are y'all hearing what I'm saying? You, the hardest thing to do, I believe, in the Adventist church is growing a small, dead country church. Because you have to change culture, and that takes everybody. All right, everyone? Let's keep moving. So what do we do? Because we met the need, because we talked to them, we realized that our young men from our single mothers, we realized that they didn't have, their, their hair was rough all through the summer. Their mothers could not afford to get them haircuts. So once a month, we did free haircuts in the community. We brought them in. On average, we did about 27 heads every time we did this. 
Uh, you can see that here. We had, we had some stuff going on while the kids are waiting. We had some movies outside, did some great stuff here. We fed them some food, and it wasn't veggie meat. Um, we had... <laughs> we had a lot of things going here. But the reason why we did this is because we wanted to meet practical needs. Like, these kids don't want step to Christ. They need to know how to fix their hygiene. Parents need to know how are they going to make it through the end of the month with little money that they have. And so we realized that, you know what, we want to bless families. So the entire summer in 2017, we did this 2017, 2018, we did this thing called Free Family Portraits. So that means that families in the community, we put this out there, and this is a great ploy to get just people into your building. They're going to get high-quality professional family photos. So people were bringing out their moms, their grandmamas, their granddaddies, their uncles, their nieces. Folk were dressing up. The house was so full. We had a way waiting list on the outside. And do you know what I was doing? I wasn't sitting there well, just watching them take pictures. I was talking to the people. Hi, my name is Pastor Austin. I'm so glad that you're with us today. And they begin to start realizing that Rev Humphreys and this church cares about us. They care about what we're doing. And they, and they, they love the photos that they took. The last thing, and this is one of the most important things that I'm really proud of that I'll share with you today, is we did job prep. You know, people come to small church thinking that we have a lot of money. Yeah, right? They want to pay the light bill. They want you to pay all these different things here. What we decided to do was we wanted to do free job prep training. So we decided to find, we, we were knocking on doors, talking to different people. We ran into a young man, or ran into a brother rather, who had been working in New York City. He retired in North Carolina. He was working in New York City for 30 years in a job resource facility. He knew all about how to do training for resume prep. We brought clothes. We got a chance to bring different things for them. You can see your interview training, free interview clothing. We had someone there from the local college for GED assistance. We did a free lunch. We did this a couple times. Each time was about 20 people that came. Out of, out of the times that we did this, at least four to five people got new jobs. And one of the things that we realized is, is that, I, of course, we could try to give you some money, but we realized that if we could change your life, that if we can give you an opportunity to do better for yourself, then you'll feel like you're more attached to what we're doing here. So in our first year, now this is funny. In 2018, we doubled our membership. Amen. Amen. <laughs> this is hard work. <laughs> so we doubled our membership. <laughs> Right. Now, we didn't, have a, we didn't have a baptismal pool, and I wasn't willing to go to somebody else's church to baptize. I don't know if it's ego or whatever. So we went to Harbor Freight and got a water trough. And we put it, I'm serious, we put it behind the church. We, had, we, we put tents up, and we baptized all those people. Okay, everybody? So we baptized 13 to 14 people in this meeting right here, and we kept all of them. And let me tell you how. We kept all of them because remember I told you that it takes the entire church. Every member that was there was responsible for a new member we baptized. So every Wednesday night, listen, we had 100% participation at Wednesday night and at church on Sabbath. And what we did was those new believers who came in, we made sure to train them so that they would be the ones to help us when we decided to do this again. Now, this is important. We do evangelism year-round. Evangelism is not when you do some meeting every once in a while and you put up some flyers. Evangelism should be done in your church every single week, every month, every year. You should have something that is evangelistic. The last thing is this. You got to establish partnerships. I right, see once you get to your church to a place where you can grow it and, and, and you, start, you start getting some things moving and, and growing, 
you realize that, you know what, I don't want to reinvent the wheel. How do I connect with people in my community that are already doing the work? We realized this. We were doing some block parties, and we kind of realized that, 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 that they were no longer coming out as much as we'd like them to. I think the first year we had 100 people on our lot. The second year we did it, we had about 55. We saw a big drop. And so we decided, you know what, we want to partner and do something different. So... Myself and my church, we partnered with the Boys and Girls Club of Washington, North Carolina. When I say partnered, I mean me as pastor, went into the Boys and Girls Club. I, I took a drug test, and I, and I did a background check, and I became an official volunteer for the Boys and Girls Club. Now, Pastor, why'd you do that? The Boys and Girls Club in Washington, North Carolina, on average a day, they were housing 87 children throughout the day. That is 87 at least families. And so by connecting with each and every one of them, them seeing my face, us showing up, that gave us an in to all these families. So whenever we do something, when the kids would go home, they would let us put flyers or anything else in their bags to give them a chance to, to uh, experience what we had to offer. And so what we decided to do was we went to the Boys and Girls Club. We, we met with their directors. We did a live block party on their lot. So instead of them coming to our church, we went to them. We got permits for the city. We had sound systems. Uh, we served them hot dogs that aren't big franks. Amen. We, we gave them things that met their need. And we were able to register over 150 families. That's extremely important. We had a lot of kids out there. The staff helped us out. This is an awesome event. And, and the only people that were helping besides me and my wife was our church, the new believers that we baptized, and the people that we had uh, there who were originally there. Because of those children, we were able to have our first VBS in our new Family Life Center. Remember I told you that we were getting ready to, we were getting ready to tear the building down. We took about two years to raise money. We put brand new flooring. All these kids that we had here, this is just one side of the room, came out of this group here. There we are again, getting ready to baptize, calling for baptisms. In 2019, we baptized 15 more. All right, baptisms came as a result due to member-led initiatives and community-wide evangelistic series. You can see here Steve Norman was there. We had a great time growing the body of Christ, uh, and that's where I was featured in this article. You know, one of the things that hurt us ultimately, though, was, of course, the pandemic. But what I will say, as I prepare to close everybody, is, is that, you know, smaller churches, doesn't matter how old, doesn't matter how many people are there, when you are intentional about planning and asking God, we, we, we got in that room, we held hands, we prayed together. We said, we want to do this. We were intentional to move forward on to the vision. The reason why this was so important, why I put this here, due to member-led initiatives. Remember, I had two churches. That meant that there were some weekends where I wasn't at my church. But the members still came out, not because they were connected to the preacher, but they were connected to the people that were in the pews. Do you know that 85%, and this is today's true in America, 85% of people who join a church today do not join because of the music or the preacher. They join because of the experience they have in the pews. And when the people are connected to people in the pews, you can see results in your church. So that's it, everybody. Thank you so much for uh, listening to our presentation for today. Okay, so we have about five, six minutes for questions. So please raise your hand if you have a question. Pastor Humphreys will repeat your question and for the audio and then answer the question, okay? We have about five minutes. I'll give you about one minute. That's fine. Yes, sir. 
elaborate, he wants me to elaborate on casting the vision. Yes. So what we did was we got a chance to sit down and we did an assessment. Our union gave us a ministry assessment. This is a free game right here, everybody. Thank you for asking that question. Typically, a lot of the, your union, your ministerials, they have access to a database or a portal, I believe from the NAD, that will give you an assessment of your entire zip code. And they will give you as close to five to 10 mile radius of that. So you definitely want to get that. That's a free resource for you to get from your union's office, right? When you get that, we're able to see what the needs are based on our zip code. We were able to find out, you know, single parent home, what, what, was, what was the needs of, of those from African American, Latino, Caucasian. We were also able to find out jobs. And we, we, we realized the top needs, we said in this zip code, we realized, okay, these are the three areas we know we can make change in right now. The top one, of course, was of course our surrounding area for those who are of low income and then our single family, single parent homes. And so we realized we're gonna cash a vision around making, give, giving them a chance to, to receive immediate change right then. So once we laid the vision together, that was our goal that we laid up, you know, the entire year. This is what we have, and we're sticking to it. If there were certain things that came up, I see your hand. If there were certain things that came up that didn't align with the vision, we didn't shoot it down. We just said we're not doing this right now because we didn't want to let anything come off course. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes. How do I motivate our members to be responsible mentors? Sure. They, because they were the smaller church, they had small church syndrome. They assumed when I got there, I was only going to hang with the larger church. But when I told them I was committed to working with them, because they were so excited, to when they saw that, that baptism, they were so excited, I, I didn't really have to do much motivating. They were all responsible for picking up people. They dropped them off at home. They made sure because they were retired, they didn't mind checking on them during the day. So really, in this case, they were self-motivated because they saw the growth. Now, what was interesting was every six months, we did do checkups and we did do more training. Another free game to give you, your, you know, your union officials and your conference officials, they have a free travel budget and they get to hotels for free. They will come to your church for free and train your people on mentorship or anything else. So that was a big part of how we kept our folk engaged in, in, in the mentorship. Yeah. Any other questions today? Any other questions? Yes, sir. So I think the, I, I think the, the how how will this work in a rural town like Texas? Texas, I think the methods, the four points that I gave you, especially the three non-negotiables, they will work because you, you, everybody has a need everywhere. So whenever you go, you want to identify the need. The biggest thing is finding a way, and even in COVID, it can still work, mask up, going to the door, knocking on the door. Well, however you can get the chance to find the need and meet the need, this can work flawlessly if you're willing to act on what you said you're going to do. So a lot of times we'll knock on the door, and then we won't show for two months. They forgot about you. So once we realized that was a need, two weeks later, we were doing what they said they wanted us to do. So once you meet the need, if there's something that you is feasible and able to do, then you want to do that for sure. Absolutely. Any, any other questions today? Yes, sir. Do I have a website for this? Do you, for the presentation? I don't, but if you come see me in the back, I'll, I can email it to whoever. That's no problem. Anybody else? Anybody else? Yes. Sir. 
So there were a couple things. Definitely a certain day I would knock on the door. You don't want to do it too much. You want to bother people. <laughs> but I would go to different city, city initiatives in the community. It was, a, it was a game going on. I would go to King's Chicken. It was a local, a local chicken spot that everybody would just kind of hang out at. I realized I need to be where the people are. You know, Christ's method alone is, is, is important. Let's us know that we got we to gotta first mingle with the people, right? And so I had to learn to mingle with them. And so once I got the stigma, that's revved by the, by, that passes the Red Brick Church, that kind of became my name going around so that people would know. Even when my Bible workers came, this is important for you too. When you bring in Bible workers into your city, when you do evangelism for the meeting, it, is, it makes as much difference when you, people knock on doors and they know who you are or somebody from your church is. And so I was able to establish a connection with people because I was going to where they were on a consistent basis. Any other questions? Anybody? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, God. Yeah. Three. Wow. Um, duplicate yourself twice. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, no, seriously. I'm, I'm going to be very transparent. Is this safe space, everybody? It's not? No. Is, are you sure? Is it really not? Oh, okay. All right. So... Uh, <laughs> I'm being recorded. Oh, okay. Never mind. No, I'm just playing. Okay, so, <laughs> so I was okay with putting more of my attention into what I believe God was calling me to do at that time. So let me just say that. It would have been, my churches were an hour and a half apart. I would have killed myself trying to grow both at the same time. Now, there's some people that can do it. Praise God for you. But for me, in order for this to work, I, put, I did put more of my energy into the city. It just made more sense. It was 10,000 people in that city versus the larger church where it was only 2,000. So I realized that God was calling us for such a time as this. Into that. that didn't mean I didn't care about the larger church, but I realized that they would be, they would be, they would be more self-sustained. They had more elders, more leaders. There was only about 50 members there still, but it was more than what we had at the smaller church. And so for us, we realized that, and are you, are you saying, do you, is that your scenario? Do you have three churches? So I'm going to be praying for you, number one. But number two, um, I think for a personal, for you and your family, you have to ask and say, okay, God, what makes the most sense for my, my ministry today to be most effective, what you want me to do? And what will what, happen is sometimes it'll feel like other churches lacking a little bit. But I believe this is that if you equip your leaders at the other churches for what's going on, it'll work. Now, the, the other thing, too, is if you train all your churches to manage and maintain while you're away, while you're gone, that will be effective, too. You know, I believe in training 100%. Do not kill yourself. Let people come in and train them so that when you're not there, stuff doesn't crumble while you're gone. Hey, but I'm praying for you, man. Three churches. That's, that's praying for you, brother. Any other questions today? Yes, sir. What do you do when you don't have leaders? Those are your leaders right there. So you said you got two. Are they faithful? Those are your leaders right there. And so you have to train and equip those that you have. I mean, I was in a scenario where, let me just say this too. I was in a scenario where, I, like I said, I only had about five people being faithful. That included the giving and that included um, our leadership team as well. I had my clerk who was like also my treasurer, my Sabbath school coordinator, uh, kind of all things. I think that in your case, you've got to find a way to equip those who you have the best way you can. Now, are, are those the only members that you have at that church? Right. 
Yeah, when two or three are gathered, I think that's kind of where we are. That's okay. That's all right. That's all right. They aren't your leaders anymore. Don't call them that. They're not your leaders. The leaders you have are the ones that are there. You know, if they left, praise God. <laughs> you know? And I mean that. I'm saying that to encourage you. Let them go. You know, a lot of times people, you know, churches will vote certain things down. If you only go out with two or three, that's the two or three you go out with. If you can make change with two, go out with two. And I know it sounds impossible because you just gave me their age and what they do, but I am telling you that if God has given you the burden and the vision, if they can do anything extra, if they can go out and just talk to people, can they call and pray with folk, whatever they can do to be, to be different, those are your new leaders. So, so for one, I would say change your language, that those who just left, they are not your leaders at all. They're gone. The ones you have now, that's your core leadership team, and I believe that the Lord can still be in the midst of that to make change, all right? Yes, sir. I, do I have, how much time do I have? Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Sure. Right. Right. Sure. That's a great question. He asked, you know, he's got membership who are older, who want to learn how to grow, who, who, who are excited, but they don't necessarily see the potential about being leaders and growing. So remember I told you that I had about a year uh, uh, that I didn't do any evangelist meeting. I took a year to really cultivate and grow my people. Not only did we find the vision, but what we did was we brought in people from, like I said, the union and, and, and the conference to be specific to my certain context. So there are certain training that you can do. Say, listen, even at your advanced age, here are a list of things that you can be effective right now. There are things that you can do that make a difference right now. Pouring into your people is something that never changes. You have to do it your entire ministry. So you start small. This is where I, I believe God is calling us. You as pastor, you lay that vision and you believe in it first. I know that you can do this. This is how we're going to do this step by step. Bringing training in from your union or your conference to give them step by step tools. They can make phone calls. They can go out and do prayer walks. They can be the ones to follow up with people after they've come to your meeting. I had a lady who couldn't go out, but she could make phone calls. So we had about that, that block party we did. She called all those people on those cars. That's, that's all her ministry was. But that gave me somebody that could reach out. Because, you know, we have this rule, right, in customer service that you should try to reach out within 24 hours, right? So her job was, I'm going to reach out. And touch these, but that's all I could do. And so I think for you, you've already said it. They want to do it, but they're just afraid. And I think that that's the part about us walking by faith and not by sight. When I saw my, my, my youth at 61, I was afraid too. So I think the biggest thing for you is, and like I said, she was the youngest. She wasn't older. I think the oldest, my wife's here. I think Brother Horn was like 86, 87, my head elder. And, and he was out here hitting the streets. So I, I just think that when you pour into your people and give them the right vision, they're going to be okay to move forward. Anybody else? Yes, Correct. That's it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, everybody. So for those of you who would like to take down his email, I'm going to have him to repeat it or, or to call it out to you. So get something the right way or get your phone ready. Uh, just like the Christian Pastor Humphreys, yes. we're only saved by grace, but it does require much effort. Yeah. Does it not? It sounds to me like your church, your, your leadership is you have faith. You believe that God's going to do great things. Right. And because of that, 
you put forth much for much effort. Absolutely. And so I really appreciate it. Can you put your hands together for Pastor Humphreys? Um, and he's going to share his email address to you letter by letter. So for those of you who want to ask him some more questions, obviously you may not be able to catch him um, today, but maybe you can follow with an email. Sure, sure, sure. So my email address is A and then Humphreys, H-U-M-P-H-R-E-Y-S at S-A-C S-D-A dot org. My, my, my email is A a. Humphreys at SACSDA.org. God bless everybody. Take care. Thank you, Austin, very much. So I saw you when you showed us a slide that you baptized 15 in one year, and you look around and said, My colleagues, this was hard work, right? It was hard work. Thank you. So, what we are doing here, we are just uh, featuring practitioners. Those who've been there, who did it, and uh, that's why this is really a very valuable. And now, next presenter is Pastor ben Benjamin Orion. So he is coming again as a practitioner, somebody uh, who uh, guided. I like the way how you express guided churches from, from plateauing stage or declining stage to uh, becoming a growing and multiplying churches. So uh, Ben is a uh, lead pastor in the Spring Day Fellowship that has uh, multi-worships experiences. So this is something that really uh, we can benefit from his presentation, the way how he was able to manage, not once, but few times. I heard that it takes only maybe once in our ministry lifetime to really uh, lead church from a dying to a growing. But you did few times. So we're looking forward to hear your presentation. You're still alive, and you're still guiding churches to grow. So please uh, share with us your journey. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Pastor Humphreys, thank you for your presentation, where he dealt more with some of the practical things that they were doing in their, in their uh, context. I want to talk a little bit about some of the, um, the ways that we got to um, some of the questions that were being asked, how did you get this to happen? How did you motivate your people? I want to talk about some of that. I, um, I've been a pastor now for almost 25 years, and I've pastored uh, 15 churches or 16 churches, something like that, because sometimes I had two or three churches at a time. Right now, I only have Springdale, and so I, I get to spend a lot of my focus there. Uh, but the Lord is really blessed, and, and what I'm going to share with you is what I've put together, together over the last six or seven uh, years in the last couple of churches, and the Lord has really um, brought us through. Springdale, Arkansas is about 80,000 people in population. Northwest Arkansas is one of the five fastest growing areas in North America. And uh, by the end of 2023, they say well, there will be over a million people in our community. Springdale was the first Seventh-day Adventist church in the state of Arkansas. And so that was established in 1885. The pastor of the church was arrested for helping the neighbor um, uh, paint the building on Sunday. And so he spent some time in, in jail. And interestingly enough, you've heard of Davy Crockett. How many of you have heard of Robert Crockett, his grandson? Robert Crockett was a senator in the state of Arkansas, and he went in there and he said, listen, 
We've got to stop these Sunday laws because we're affecting Seventh-day Adventists negatively. They're helping us in the community, and we're putting them in jail. And so Robert Crockett stood on the floor of the Arkansas House Legislature and said, we got to stop the Sunday laws. That happened in 1887. 1885, Springdale had 500 church members. They established the church, and a year later, they had 100 um, I'm sorry, Springdale, the city, had 500 people living in it. A year later, the church had 100 church members, which means one in five people in the city were Seventh-day Adventists. Fast forward to 2018 when I became the pastor there, and they had about 100 attending. 135 years later, and they've had ebbs and flow, they've had growth, they've had decline, and uh, they were really proud. That pulpit, it's hard to see there, that's a picture from... Um, some years ago. That's the pulpit that Ellen White stood behind when she came to Springdale and did an evangelistic series. And they thought that was the best thing ever to preach behind. Unfortunately, now I don't mean any disrespect. I think that there is value in history, but that's now somewhere else. I use a table to speak out of. I don't use a pulpit. I use a table. And part of the reason is, is because people today, millennials and Gen Zers, are more interested in dialogue than they are monologue. So if you stand behind a pulpit, you are communicating a monologue. But if you stand behind a table or even out front of a table and invite conversation while you preach, you invite dialogue and people are more willing to interact and communicate with you. So this is what the front of our church looked like when I got there. It wasn't very exciting, but that's what it was. And so we went back to the drawing board and we did some work because we wanted our church to be representative of who we are, what we believe. And as my brother was saying, people need to have a fantastic experience when they come and worship. And so that's more along the lines of what it's looking like today. And the, the, in that picture, it's still not finished. We completely redid the whole front end uh, to make it more interesting. Let me get into the why of it, though, because this is, this is just cosmetic. This doesn't really amount to anything. And I'm here to tell you that it really doesn't matter what your church looks like as long as your people are willing to meet and greet and love and care, and then others will come back. Springdale Adventist Fellowship, we desire to inspire, connect, and impact. That's what we do. Every week is about inspiring people, connecting with people, and impacting them in a special way. We chose as our, as our vision mission statement that we want to impact others by making disciples who inspire hope and reflect the character of God. Springdale Adventist Fellowship it tries to incorporate this vision into everything that we do, whether it's worship, whether it's Sabbath school, whether it's midweek, pathfinders, leadership team meetings, no matter what it is, this is at the heart of everything that we do. How do we get them there? I came in 2018, 100 people attending. And they wanted evangelism and they wanted church growth, but they didn't know what to do. They had had an evangelistic meeting four months before I got there. I said, where's your interest list? They said, what's that? You all know what an interest list is. Anybody in here have more than 200 people on your interest list currently? Okay, thank you. A few of you. The rest of you? Why not? Every time somebody walks through your door that you don't know, that's an interest. You should be getting their name, their address, their phone number, their social security card, their credit card, anything they'll give you, 
You need to get that information and ask them to let you send them information the next time you're doing a big event so that you can invite them to come back and worship with you. Get their information. So how do you do that, though? Well, really, the bottom line is if you're going to move a church that is plateaued and dying into revitalized and healthy and thriving, you have to tackle the one word that everybody just loves. And the reality is, is when I went to this church, you all have seen it. It's the cartoon that says, we want a pastor who's gonna change us and motivate us, but leave everything the same. Y'all aren't even hearing me. So, so pastor, we like your ideas, but can you leave everything the same and still do it? Okay, so I realized as I began to study this out, I realized though that change is really not the problem. Moving people from point A to point B is actually not a very big problem. The problem is, because see, change happens every day. In fact, you'll change your plans 150 times a day. You will change your activities, your course. You'll be driving along and all of a sudden you'll notice there's a skyscraper there and you're like, man, when did that build? You know, change happens. We're used to that. The real issue is not change. The real issue is how to move people in between the change from A to B, and we call this the transition. Now, this is really important, focusing on transition, because transition is not just physical. Transition for most people is psychological. And the moment you understand this little thing what I'm about to give you right here is going to make a difference in everything else that you do. I am a type A personality. I am a concrete. I am a locomotive. Once I start doing something, get out of my way, I will roll you over to get there. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just telling you who I am. My wife is a wonderful person. She slows me down and helps me to understand that uh, I need to be a little more sensitive. I'm, a, I'm, I'm what you call a pioneer. Sometimes I'm so out in front of the church, I turn around and there's nobody behind me. I have to go back and find them. And a friend of mine gave me this. He said, Ben, you're a locomotive. You are powerful. You are able to pull an entire church along with you. The problem is you gotta go back and you gotta hook up to them first. So you go back and you get hooked up, and then you help them to transition. Transition is psychological. What that means is, is you have to help people to move from point A to point B. What does that mean? Well, let me give you an example. I decided, I told my church one Sabbath as I was preaching, I said, if we're doing the same old worship service time after time after time, then are we really worshiping because we sit, we stand, we kneel, and we know when to do it. We, went, we know what the cues are. When the elders walk out on the platform, we all know to kneel. When the organist starts playing the opening hymn, we all know to stand. Are we really worshiping or are we just following the habitual cues that have been ingrained in us since we were born? My church said, oh yeah, we're just, we're just following cues. I said, okay, so we need to change that. We need to change our service so that we are thinking about what we're actually doing in worship. I got some people in my church that are like, ah, we're changing. And they resisted it, and they hated it, and then we did it. And three months later, I said, okay, guys, we're back into the habit. we got to change things. But these same people who had resisted change, now they're like, no, we like it. They had transitioned, and now they're fighting me to transition again. Do you understand what I'm saying? So what did I have to do? I had to figure out a way to help them to move through the transition, because you see, when you ask somebody to change, you're actually asking them to give something up. 
And when you ask people to give something up, that means that you're asking them to give a part of them up. And when you understand that psychologically this is deeply personal, then we, have, we will be a little more patient as we give them the time to, to, to process through what's happening. We have to have patience, we have to have prayer, uh, we have to have guidance, and we have to have education. I teach my elders constantly to learn. In fact, I don't have an elders meeting and I don't have a board meeting. I don't have board meetings anymore. I have leadership team meetings. And if you want to be a leader on my leadership team, it's not based on the positions in the church manual. It's based on the people who are actively engaged in the mission of the church. You understand what I'm saying? You get a seat at the table when you get involved and put some skin in the game, and that means mission and ministry. And, and so, but you come to those, you're required to read. I choose books that are based on leadership, church growth, spirituality, whatever we're working with or dealing with, and they have to read and come back and give a report each time we meet on what they have learned so that we are constantly bettering ourselves to be better leaders, better church leaders, and better people in the community. So what are some of the factors for transition? Well, we need to figure out what's actually gonna change. Uh, we need to ask how this is going to impact the members that we have. What do the stakeholders in your church stand to lose through this process? What do they stand to gain through the process? What are we going to stop doing that's gotten us to this point? Every one of us has reached a spot in our churches where we're in a certain situation. We gotta figure out why we got there. And then we need to ask ourselves, what are we gonna do to start what do we need to start doing to get us where we want to go? This is a process that we have, our leadership team once a year sits down and we look at, or if we're proposing a big change, we go through these questions as a leadership team so that we're all on the same board, so that it's not just the pastor having to stand up front and be the message bearer. We as a team are saying, this is who we are as a church together. Does that make sense? Now, I want to give you four cautions, four words of cautions. Number one, you need to be prepared for overreaction and exaggeration. Be prepared for it. What does that mean? I, um, I believe very firmly that leaders lead by example, and one of the ways that we lead is in our time and in our giving. I require my leadership team to be faithful in their tithes and in their offerings. Now, their faithfulness is between them and God. Their giving is the example, uh, is the visible evidence that they have a relationship. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I'm not trying to make sure that when they gave $1,000 that that was actually 10%. I just want to know that they've got a system and a habit of giving. So every year when our leadership team begins, I send a paper around our leadership team and I ask them to be faithful and sign. If you've ever been on an executive committee or anything like that, they do the same thing there. So this is not out of line. Well, one of my church members was brand new. He's, uh, when I was brand new, he saw this and he says, oh no, pastor's telling us that he wants us to sign a paper that's going to guarantee that we're gonna vote for whatever he asks for. <laughs> Overreaction and very big exaggeration. So me and that brother had to have a come to Jesus meeting and we sat down and he was like, oh, okay, I get it. Caution number two. You gotta let your members work through their feelings of loss. Listen, your church is where it is and it's got history, it's got a story, and it's got a lot of, a, it's got a lot of legacy. 
And when you start meddling to get your church growing, your people are going to experience a loss. Again, psychologically and emotionally. You've got to let them process through that. Number three, the third caution. Once you do this, you've got to keep the vision, your purpose, front and center of the church. You've got to say it over and over and over again. One of the things that we did in our church is we went and put that vision statement and put it on the wall real big so everybody can see it when they walk through the door. So they know who we are, what we're doing, and what we're trying to do. The fourth caution that you got to do is you have to respect the history of the church. I keep praying for one of those Arkansas tornadoes to take out the building because we have outgrown it. We need something better. We had a tornado touchdown three months ago, a mile away from the church. And I was like, Lord, come on. Is your aim that bad? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That tornado actually hit one of my church members' homes, wiped it out completely. So, so, and that church member's a longtime member. Some of my church members have sweat equity in building the building we're in. The Springdale Church that we are in right now is the third building that our church has had in the city of Springdale. Um, I'm sorry, it's the fourth building. One of, one of my church members has been a part of building, th- building three of them. He's been a member since 1959. So you gotta respect the history. You gotta understand what they're doing and what, where they've been. Uh, there's a guy by the name of D.H. Uh, Lawrence. He says this, the world fears a new experience more than it fears anything because they just don't know what to do with it. And so, so how do we get there? Okay, my time's running out, so I'm gonna plow through this. And I see a lot of pictures being taken. I'm willing to share my slides with you. I'm also willing to share, um, a, uh, uh, we have a process that we use of how to cast a vision, how to connect a mission, and I'm willing to share that process from my church, and all you have to do is plug in your own information. Uh, there are four Ps to revitalizing your church. Actually, you can do any letters you want, and I'm sure. I just wanted you to be able to remember them. And so the first thing to revitalize in a church is you have to come back to what is your purpose? Why are you there? My brother gave you all kinds of purpose. There's soul winning, and there is, oh, by the way, that's one of the things I believe in, soul winning, and, and baptisms. Let me tell you how important baptisms are to revitalization. You have to have a baptism, and you gotta get a baptism as soon as you possibly can. And if you're looking around your church and you're going, man, I don't know who I'm gonna baptize, then you need to get on your knees and ask the Lord, and I guarantee you that is the one prayer that he will always answer. He wants to bless his children, and he wants to see soul winning, and he will bring you people to baptize. So I went to my church, and I said, I standing up in the pulpit, and I said, hey, guys, we need to have a baptism. When was the last time the church had a baptism? Uh, It's been years. We need to have baptism. I want to challenge the church to have one baptism in every calendar month for the next year. Okay. They did it. They prayed it. And we succeeded. One baptism every calendar month. And we got done with that. And, 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 and we got done with that month. Now, here's the deal. I threatened them. One, one Sabbath, we're third weekend. We don't have a baptizing, man. And I don't know who I'm going to baptize. I'm looking around like, man. God, I needed somebody to baptize. So on the third Sabbath, I stood up in the pulpit and I said, look, y'all, there's no baptism. If there's no baptism, I'm still going in the baptistry next week with all the water in it and asking who's supposed to be here today. I've never had to do that. The Lord has always provided a baptizing. So we got going with this. Wait, now check this out. We asked the Lord to give us a baptism every calendar month, but we started baptizing so much that pre-pandemic, we realized we were averaging a baptism every other week. So then we said, well, if God can give us a baptism every other week, then why doesn't he give us one every week? 
pandemic hit, story to be continued. I decided we needed to have some baptisms. I got church members that say, hey, this is pre-pandemic. I got the pandemic weight going on. Give me a couple of months. I'll get it back off. But pre-pandemic, I had some church members that said, Pastor, we want to get baptized. We don't want to do it in the building. This uh, man in the gray shirt kind of way over there, he wanted to be baptized, but he didn't want to be baptized in the pool in the church. So he wanted to be baptized outside. This is this is in November in Arkansas. That lake behind me is about 46 degrees. That's the water temperature. You notice everybody else is in coats. I'm standing there in shorts and a t-shirt. So we did all the preliminary conversation out on the, out on the dock. And uh, I baptized he and his wife. And uh, really exciting thing. Now, here's the key. And my brother said it. When you baptize somebody, what's the next thing you have to do? You got to disciple them. My model of discipleship says, I want to teach you, now that you're a new member, I want to teach you how to go make a new member. One year later, that same brother standing in the baptistry with his son, and he helped me to baptize his own son into the faith. That's the way we do it. Kids want to get baptized. I know, look at that. Cool Joe wearing his sunglasses for a baptizing, but it was bright that day. So you got to do baptisms, and you got to talk about baptisms, and you got to talk about baptisms every single week. But pastor, I only have 30 members in my church. Fantastic. The, through the pandemic, the conference gave me a second church to, to, to look out and to care for. First thing I stood in the pulpit and said is, when was the last time you all had a baptizing? Before I, I was only there for exactly one year, exactly one year. And for the first six months, they didn't even want me there. But before it was all said and done, we'd pulled the lid off the tank and we'd started baptizing people. And I was just talking to the pastor who's in there now and he's got people lining up for baptism because they finally caught the vision that baptisms are important. And then discipleship. You have to have, you have to turn people into soul winners. And if you don't know, and if you haven't turned a, bat, um, a new convert into a soul winner yet, that's okay. Work on your elders, work on your deacons, work on every... Let me tell you, when we, got, when we realized we were baptizing somebody every other week, I realized that my church members were walking around. People would walk in the door. Hi, I'm Sister Mary. Have you been baptized? Literally. <laughs> That's what they were doing. That's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. So the first thing you got to do is you got to have purpose. Second thing you got to do is you got to have a picture. You need to be able to visualize what it is that you want people to do. And sometimes to be able to do that, you have to change the narrative and the vision. For too long, people talk about the negative. We like to nurse and nurture the negative instead of pointing out and pushing up the positive. Y'all aren't even hearing me today. You got to change the storyline. People say, man, pastor, we tried that before and it didn't work. Those are the last eight words of a dying church, you know. Uh, we done did that and it didn't work. Well, why didn't it work? Oh no. Well, let's think about it. Let's talk about it. Did you know you gotta you gotta put the vision in front of people and you gotta say it no less than seven times for it to even catch hold for them to be able to recognize it, and then seven more times for them to remember it, and seven more times after that, and maybe you'll get them to move it into a habit. So what I do is I ask my church, what do you want your church to look like in the next five years? And I take this to my leadership team. What do you want it to look like? I'll, if you email me after I give you my email address, I'll send this to you. What does you want it to look like? So we created a five-year plan at my church, and we came up with the five things that we want to do better than anybody else because excellence is a part of the gospel. What Jesus did was excellent. 
It was hard, but it was excellent. So we wanna do some things good. So we decided we're gonna call it Next Gen Extreme. What in the world is that? It's a fancy word, what does it mean? What we're trying to do is we wanna provide outstanding programming, mentoring, and leadership to our children so that they become the leaders right now, the next generation leading right now. By the way, if you come to my church on any given Sabbath, there's a young person doing something. We have two people under the age of 18 who are active members of our leadership team, and the expectations of everybody else is on them as well. They don't get a pass just because they're kids, and they're not there as token members. Remember, I said at the, to get a seat at the table, you gotta be involved and engaged. This is part of what we're doing. We also wanna have passionate worship. We want to be able to create experiences where people come in and they feel the presence of God and they are drawn to, can't, to the point where they can't wait to get back next week. Our, our numeric goal for this is to be 500 attending in the next five years. Now, let me pause right there and go back. Pre-pandemic, I got there about 100 attending. 18 months later, pandemic hit. When it hit, we had gone to two services, 200 attending, more than that on special events, and our Sabbath school classes had tripled in size. We had outgrown the building in 18 months. Now, where are we now? Post-pandemic, we came back from the pandemic. I had to rebuild the church. Because I say I, we had to rebuild because we had about 20 people carry over from that 200. People moved away. We hadn't baptized quite everybody yet. You know, you know how it is. And so we started back with 20. Right now we're sitting at about 140, and it's a completely new group of people, but we're building in right from the ground their DNA, soul winning, baptisms, all this stuff is a part of it. The next thing that we, we built in is radical hospitality. We wanted to create a safe and open place for people to worship, to learn, and to grow in their faith, and at the same time learn discipling, mentoring, and, and charity along the way. They needed to feel safe and like they were welcome into your home when they came in. You have to be intentional about that, by the way. You have to be intentional to set somebody at the door who's willing to shake hands and greet people and stop their conversations, even though they're being rude with the people that they're talking to because the most important person is the person coming through the door. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's the only way you're gonna get their name, address, and telephone number and credit card number is if you're being nice to them. Where's the bathroom? Oh, it's around the corner, three doors down on the right. No, at my church, where's the bathroom? Here, let me show you, I'll take you to the door, okay? And then we leave so they don't feel all weird and everything. <laughs> Risk-taking mission. We need to connect in the community with mission-minded ministries that make positive and tangible differences in the lives of the people in the community. So we actually stop church once a quarter to go be church. Y'all didn't just hear what I said. We don't meet at church to worship. We meet at church to put our scrubs on and we go out and we work in the community and we do community service for the day. Jesus said it's right to do good on the Sabbath. I read in scripture where Jesus healed people on the Sabbath over and over and over again. And if I'm not mistaken, I look around my community, there's a lot of hurting people who need some healing. And so we got risk-taking missions. By the way, the Adventist churches in the neighborhood, there's about 20 other churches in the surrounding 50 miles. Yeah, they were criticizing us for breaking the Sabbath. And then we teach extravagant generosity. If you want your church to grow, you gotta create something that people will buy into, which means that they will spend their money for it. And I'm not just talking about tithes. I don't know about you, I don't have any problem getting people to tithe. I have a hard time getting people to understand the difference between tithe and church budget. 
And so we're teaching people how to be extravagant in their generosity. And you know what's really amazing is, is we went from 200 to 20. We went from being able to make our budget to not making our budget. Very, it was, I mean, a couple months, we barely took in $2,000, which wasn't enough to take care of the basic needs of the church. And yet the Lord provides. And now we seem to be able to make budget. It's crazy how that works because people get into it. And then we chose core values. What are your core values? As a person, I have core values. One of my core values, just as an example, is Sabbath rest. It is important to me that I get rest. One of my core values is that my family is my most important ministry project. Y'all aren't hearing me. It's core values. Those are my personal ones. So our church decided that it needed some core values. So we went through, and I'm just going to go real fast. We decided we needed to be a praying church. We needed to be a church that got back to studying the word. Used to be Seventh-day Adventists were known as people of the book. We decided we were going to be known that again. We want dynamic communication, not just in the church, but in the community. But by the way, dynamic communication means no more gossip, no more storytelling, no more listening to gossip. We are going to change the narrative. We're going to be people who are inspiring and uplifting. We're going to build healthy families. Do you know that the divorce rate in the Adventist church is as bad as it is in the world? It's time to build up our community, our families. And so we decided we were going to have healthy families. We took the growing young motif because you're never too old, never too young to lead. My daughter next Sabbath will be, she's uh, 10 years old. She's given the children's story next week. Oftentimes, last Sabbath, we had a group of uh, five kids, no older than 12, leading the praise and worship time. A couple of times a year, I have kids preach. Y'all aren't hearing me. I teach them how to preach, and that's important. Number, the next thing we did is we have to have, our value is to have community connections, and then we want to have passionate worship. So these are things that, these are our core values, and we worked through this, and now every time our leadership team meets, we look at our goals, we look at our core values, and we ask, how are we going to make those things happen this month at Springdale Adventist Fellowship? So you gotta, you gotta, have, um, you gotta have that vision. So you gotta have, and, and then the next thing, the, four, the third P is you gotta have a plan. How you gotta make this? If your plans... <laughs> don't seem impossible, they're probably not big enough. Because if your plan is doable, then God can't bless it. Can I just say that again? If your plan is doable, God won't bless it because then you'll take the credit for what God did. So your plan has to seem impossible by human standards. That way when you achieve it, you can say it wasn't nothing but the Lord. And the Lord loves to bless impossibilities. I'm talking about Gideon taking out an army with 300 men. I'm talking about David, and I'm talking about, you know, you just go through the Bible, right? So your, your, your plan has got to be big. And, and, and great plans often meet failure because you don't have a good implementation plan. So you need to make sure that you're going to implement it. So when you're sitting at your leadership team and now you've got your plan built and you've got your vision destroy, dis, de, um, described, what you need to do is sit around and say, okay, who's going to do this? And who's going to do this? And when are you going to report back to me that you've got that done? And who's going to be the lead person on this? Organize your people. Teach them organization. Teach them leadership so that even when you're gone, you have a well-oiled machine at home with people still raising up souls for the kingdom. I was, I've been traveling a ton for the last six months. 
I was out of my church. One of my, one of my members is a retired pastor. He called me up. And he says, Pastor, I got some people ready to be baptized. I said, great, baptize them. Well, when are you going to be back? I said, what do you need me for? Baptize them. That's what it is. My elders got excited. Can we baptize too? I said, why not? So do it. And they got excited about it. So you got to have plan. We, we plan for worship. We plan our community service. We have metrics to figure out how we're doing along the way. And we have infrastructure built in. That's all the things I just described to make sure that we get our accomplishment. Participation, ministry and revitalization is not about your seating capacity. It's about your sending capacity. How many people have you turned into soul winners in the last? So we did this uh, evaluation at our church in January, and we discovered that we had about 25 people who were engaged in the mission and the ministry of the church out of, at that time, about 100 attending. And we said, that's just never going to do. So we made it our goal for year number one to have 40 people engaged in the mission and the ministry of the church with the ultimate goal of getting to 50% of attendance involved in mission and ministry. Does anybody know why I didn't say 100% ministry involvement? The answer is simple. If your church is growing, you're gonna have new people every Sabbath or every month, and you have to have time to move them from new interest to baptism to ministry involvement. Sometimes ministry involvement happens before baptism. Had this lady walk into my church, big orange hair, big hoop earring. She had heard about the Adventists, how conservative we were. She wanted to come make a statement. They didn't accept me. That was her intention. She walked into church. One of my ladies at the door saw her coming and said, I got it, I got it. She told everybody, this one's mine. I was standing there, I'm telling you the truth, this one's mine. She came in the door, she greeted her with a hug. She said, hey, what brings you to church? She said, well, I want to see what all the fuss was about. She says, hey, look, we're actually having a lunch today and I could use an extra pair of hands in the kitchen. Would you join me in the kitchen? Took her during Sabbath school time into the kitchen where they got involved in preparation of the food and then when it was about time for church, she said, hey, look, I don't wanna keep you from church. You need to go experience our pastor. So she took her into church and sat down with her with her arm around her shoulder the whole time. I baptized her six weeks later. Orange hair and all. And, and so purple hair, it's different every week, and she does it just to, but you know what's really interesting is last Sabbath I saw her, she asked for an anointing because she's been dealing with some issues, and, and you wouldn't recognize her, totally different woman, totally, and now she stands at the door because she wants to be the one to get the next one. True story, true story. Purpose, picture, plan, and participation. 2019, I had a church member come to me, this is my last story, and I'll sit down. 2019, I had a church member come to me and said, Pastor, I want to do a food pantry. Well, okay, make it happen. He said, no, I, I want you to do the food pantry. Look, bro, I don't have time, man. I'm, I, I'm busy doing other stuff. I got a rule. I don't mow the churchyard. I will come to a work bee, but that is not my job. My job is teaching, discipling, and soul winning. And, and, and some of you have church members that expect you to be doing that, and you have to set the record straight. That's what we have members for. It is their church. The church will be there long after you're not. So teach them to do their jobs. And I teach my people that mowing the yard is just as important as any of the other jobs because if it looks ready, you saw the picture when the first picture I had, the big overgrown bushes and all that. Man, we had to get out there and do some work. And I showed up and I helped, but that's not my job. You understand what I'm saying? 
People need to understand what they do. So I said to this member, I said, well, if you want a food pantry, you better get after it. Yeah, whatever, pastor, angry, turned around and walked away. Two weeks ago, we did the ribbon cutting on our food pantry. Church member had a come to Jesus moment, got after it, he and his wife, and they opened this thing. Now, I want to stop and point out one thing. Um, this gentleman right here is, um, when you start doing stuff in the community, we, we said we wanted to have community connections that mattered. Do you remember me saying that? So you have to be connecting with people and making positive differences. So when we opened our food pantry, we had made connections enough that that man showed up all the way from Washington, D.C. That is the Reverend Jesse Jackson's first and personal assistant. Jesse Jackson sent him to the food pantry to witness the opening and to make a speech about being in the hands of Jesus. You see, when you start connecting with people, you have no idea the connections that you're making or how deep and how far they go. And so when you start getting into it, you begin to realize that your impact may be deeper and more significant than you ever realized. And so I've just talked about a process, but I'm also showing you the results. And we praise God that even though our pantry is small right now, people can come in and go shopping and everything, those two freezers in the picture, those are $5,000 a piece. We didn't pay for them. They were donated to the church because of community connections. And when you start making an impact, putting people first and making sure that they know who Jesus is and that they see Jesus in you, the difference will be made and your church will be revitalized and you will see instantaneous uh, change, transition, and growth. Thank you very much. So we have only three minutes to, to finish the meeting, so we have maybe time for one or two questions. Uh, Couple questions. Yes, sir. Yes, sit, go ahead and I'll, I'll repeat it so they can record it. The devil attacks everything we do, including my own personal family. Um, I can always tell when something, I'm, can I just be transparent for just a minute and, and, and just trust that you're not going to walk out of here and go, oh, you should have heard that. I don't want that. But I, I do want to be transparent. Um, I love my wife with all of my heart. She is my best friend. She's my confidant. She is my ministry team member, my ministry mate. You understand what I'm saying? But my wife and I can have some intense moments of fellowship, y'all. In other words, we argue sometimes. And I can always tell when something big is about to happen at the church because it gets really intense at home. I'm just being transparent with you because pastors' families are attacked hard, as hard or harder than just about anybody else. And so what I'm trying to tell you is, is that he has attacked my family multiple times to the point where it was the grace of God that held us together. And so we get on our knees a lot and we pray a lot. Two weeks ago, right before this pantry opened, man, the day before, my wife and I were having a great day. We went on a date. We're laughing, carrying on. Something happened that night, man. We we're just like, all of a sudden, it's just tension in the house. Something happened with my son or my daughter. I don't remember. It doesn't matter, but something happened. And we're and I said, hey, 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 let's pray. Let's pray. Let's pray. Let's pray. Let's pray. And that's what we do. We get on our knees and we start praying. Sometimes together, sometimes individually, because something just you know, the devil is really good at getting us in our moments of weakness. And my moment of weakness is 
not only am I a strong leader, I'm a very passionate individual, and if I don't get my way, I told you I steamroll people, and sometimes I steamroll my family, and I'm not proud of it. I'm just telling you that I understand that this is where I'm at, and so maybe I steamrolled in that moment, and I, I have to go pray by myself and say, okay, God, because the devil takes those moments to derail everything else. So he attacks my family. Number two, he attacks people, families in your church. My, one of my elders came to me. He's in tears. He's like, my wife's not even talking to me right now. What's going on? We start talking. Then we start figuring out, man, he's about to have this big ministry event at the church. He's going to be doing something spectacular and out of this world, we think. And the devil's attacking, attacking, attacking. So you got to get on your knees, number one. Number two, you got to have a thick skin. Your church members will attack you. I have had more attacks from church members than I have the people in the community. I've got church members who are meaner than the devil. At my present church, I had church members go to the conference and try to get me fired because they hate you. So the devil attacks your family. He attacks you. You got to have a thick skin and you got to be prayerful. Yes, ma'am, in the back. That's right, uh, so that everybody else can hear that the devil attacks the people that he doesn't have in his arsenal. It's like this, the devil has, is a finite being, therefore the devil has finite resources, therefore the devil is going to aim everything that he has at the people that will, be a, that will do the most damage to God's kingdom, and sometimes that's not the people on the outside, that's the people on the inside. My email, my name is Ben, B as in boy, E, N as in Nancy, Ben, at my last name, O-R-I-A-N dot U-S, ben, ben at Orion dot U-S, B-E-N at O-R-I-A-N dot U-S. Send me your email um, and put in your subject line, if you don't mind, um, revitalize. That way I'm looking for you, and I'll be happy to send you my slides. I use uh, Keynote, but I'll send them to you in picture form so that you can use them. And I'll be happy to send you also the form that I use. It'll have all of our church's information on it. You can just delete it out and put in what you want because we also have our first year's goals and standards that we're working on as a part of that paper so you can get an idea of how to do that each year that you go through your five-year plan. By the way, at the end of your first year and your five-year plan, how many years are left in your five-year plan? Five. It always starts over. You're always in a five-year plan. You're always in a five-year plan. Does that make sense? Thank you, Ben, very much. So before we ask Ben to close with the prayer, I would like just to go a few announcements. So you know that our revitalization boot camp is continuing tomorrow morning at 11. 11 is going to happen, I believe, next door, on this side, the next door. And uh, our topic is going to be how to get your church from 85 attendance to 2,000. So you want to come here tomorrow morning and you'll be able to really experience another journey of growth. And uh, as well, I have, a, I have two gifts. It's a $10 Amazon, yes. But uh, let's remember those who are maybe pastoring more than two churches, dying churches in the district. Can I see your hands, first two hands? Okay, so you, you are not so quick. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, you know what? He raised first. So, okay, you'll have it. I'm sorry. Come next time, and uh, we will have another gift. Uh, may God bless you all. Ben, do you mind close us with the prayer? It will be awesome. Thank you. Yep. Let's, uh, do you mind standing with me as we pray? Loving Father in heaven, 
A million words and 10,000 years are not enough to say thank you for how good you are. And we stand in this room together, men and women, fellow co-laborers for the cause of Christ, because we understand that what you have done for us is so great, so big, so beyond our capacity, that all we're left with is saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you for saving us, and thank you for giving us the opportunity to tell somebody else about what you've done for us. May that be our cry until the day when Jesus comes. May we be faithful in preaching the story of Jesus and growing your kingdom on earth until Jesus comes and takes us all home. We ask this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great evening. See you tomorrow. Blessings.